0: Good evening, everyone. It's so good to be here. I feel that fall has finally started, and I'm so excited to have the opportunity to have um, what I think will be a conversation, uh, not so much a lecture. Of course, I'll probably do most of the talking, but um, I'll be looking at you for interesting facial expressions and nods and so on and so forth. feel free to ask all the questions that you'd like to ask at the end, Um, but if you'd like to interrupt me during the talk, that's fine, too, okay? Um, During the past 35 years, there has been a shift away from literacy as reading and reading as decoding. And just uh, some interesting examples of that. Um, recently in the United Kingdom, the Reading Association has changed its name to the Literacy Association. And just two days ago, I received a ballot from the National Reading Conference um, and were asked to vote on a, on a new name, the Literacy Research Association, rather than the National Reading Association. So the concept of literacy has changed not only because of the development of digital technologies such as this, um, but also because of the ways in which people's social identities are changing in a world of economic and global um, and cultural globalization. So today's literacies include visual literacies, computer literacy, political literacy, low rider literacy, manga literacy, among others. And I'm sure you might have um, some other ideas of the various literacies that you practice. Um, As an anthropologist of education, I I use, in my analysis, sociologist Raymond Williams' approach to cultural etymology. Um, He was very interested in the ambiguity of the definitions of concepts and terms that we use. And he thought that those concepts um, were embedded in the values of cultural tropes, So when I think about what literacy means in today's world, I'm very interested in how people use it and how that's connected to culture. So of course, our concepts, including the concept of literacy, is context-bound. So for example, when we talk about literacy events, we're talking about the occasions in everyday life when print plays a role. And when we talk about literacy practices, we think about the social practices connected to the written word and how those are patterned. Um, Now, literacy practices are part of a broader social relations, and today, interestingly enough, when we think about what literacy means and uh, the consequences of people being literate or not, we, we find that literacy is used by many people as a metaphor or a code to refer to general competence or awareness. So it's just become so much more than reading, writing, listening, and talking. Brian Street has argued that Western culture has emphasized writing and written language as a means of communication. People who are illiterate or print or not print literate have developed other means of communication, however, often relying on complex symbol systems and interaction to get along and thrive in society. So, when we look at how historically literacy has been defined, we think of First of all, literacy for participation in the marketplace. It's a major gatekeeping enterprise. I remember um, during an interview where I was interviewed by a principal uh, when I was in college because I was going to be a teacher in a school or, or tutor in the school. And I was asked right away to write a really good paragraph in front of that principal. And so my ability to write the paragraph, to, to be able to do that kind of literacy event, um, was used as a gatekeeping um, uh, device. Now, literacy has been used as opposed to illiteracy, and I think that's a really complicated term, by the way. I prefer to say that people may be print liter- print literate or not, or print literate, because there are so many ways we can be literate. Um, the idea of the social turn is that Literacy as the patterns of social practices that are linked to our ways of encoding our experience in order to share them with others. Um, And you can think about the classroom setting as a social turn, or the connection between a teacher and a student as a social turn. And as such, then, we have ways in which people use multiple modalities or the tools at hand to construct practices for particular purposes. And by multi-modalities, that refers to the differences in which that material is going to be presented. I keep thinking, for example, of um, a little boy who is in first grade, his name is Donnie, and he appears in uh, Victoria Purcell Gates' book, um, Other People's Words. And she explains that Donnie is in school one day and the teacher asks the the children to fill in the blanks on this worksheet. And Donnie comes from a family in Cleveland, Ohio that's print illiterate. No one in the family, neither the father, the mother, the children knows how to read and write. And so he's looking at the words at the top of the list and the blanks on the list, um, the blanks within that paragraph. And what he does, given that his father is a carpenter, he measures the words. With a ruler and then measures the blanks. And that's how he decides which word will go in which blank. He uses a, literate, a literacy, a type of literacy that um, is legitimate in his home setting, but obviously is not legitimate in the school setting. And he uses the tools at hand um, the ruler and the pencil. Now, of course, he didn't do well in that exercise at school, and that kind of modality wasn't recognized. But it's what, it's what we have to think about as we design the ways in which we want people to participate in literacy activities. Now, there is a certain set of, uh, well, we have literacy values um, that we think about. And I've listed <coughs> some of the ones that I, I thought of. Um, Literacy practices are not valued equally. So if we, we think about self-generated or imposed literacies, a self-generated could be a private journal. Um, an imposed literacy could be a descriptive paper assigned at school. The private journal probably has um, less value in terms of status than, say, the descriptive paper in a school. Indigenous versus imported literacies. Think about standard English. Standard American English versus other kinds of Englishes, um, dominant versus vernaculars. That's think of all the ways. Think about standard English again and slang, um, creative literacies versus constrained literacies, um, and you know, think about why when you go to Starbucks, for instance, instead of saying "I would like a large cafe latte, please," you say something like "I'd like a venti um, size." cafe latte. Why is it that that imported word has more status than your regular English word that you might use? Um, then we have literacies that, where the binary com- uh, description could be domesticated versus um, empowering. And think about um, people who do uh, work from home as opposed to being in a, um, in a workplace setting. And then we have distinctions between literacy practices that are disciplinary versus general popular ones, for example. So imagine the domains, institutions, and cultures as determining the value of such practices, how people use agency to shift power and status. And I found a really interesting video excerpt that talks about, or that offers us a way to think about print literacy and how People who are not print literate don't have access to um, institutions that they need, for example, health care. So let me, I hope this works. Um, let's see if that'll work. Give it a moment. <coughs>
1: Tonight, we give a special look
0: at a crisis that is largely hidden in this country illiteracy. Seven million people
1: are completely illiterate. They cannot read a word. Twenty seven million Americans cannot complete a job application. Thirty
0: million cannot read a simple sentence.
1: ABC Pierre Thomas on the impact of so many people living in the shadows. For nearly all of her 45 years, Monica Baxley has lived with the crippling secret. I cried a lot of this when I was alone. Baxley was functionally illiterate. She quit school in the ninth grade, and for three decades kept her secret from friends, family, even her husband. I didn't want to be exposed beyond anything else. That was the most important thing not for no one to ever learn. Her travel limited because she was unable to read road signs, unable to read a newspaper or food labels in a supermarket. She never voted in an election. I didn't know who or what I for. Well, no. the doctor, well, no. doctor no. out of VA, she would no. have no. To, to fill out a medical, medical form, form or read a prescription. My, prescription. My health
2: is poor now,
1: but I really believe that's because, because I never went, went to the doctor.
2: It, it is, is a life and death issue, and, and the reason the for this is, the is that literacy, literacy affects your health in so many
1: different ways. The American Medical Association Foundation, Foundation surveyed patients who could not read. This woman signed a form she could not understand, agreeing to a hysterectomy without knowing it. My mouth fell open and I thought to myself,
0: how could I be so stupid as to allow somebody to take part in my body?
1: And I didn't know it. Another woman described the stress of a
0: doctor's
2: you know visit. Saying. It paralyzes your thoughts completely to think that she may say something or something is quicker before for you to read and you can't read it. It's, it's a tremendous problem when we think about the cost for us economically, health-wise. Undiagnosed learning disorders,
1: poverty, unstable home life are all factors contributing to illiteracy. My mother passed the final interview at age 41 and now, and now spends time helping others. I believe that's all, Mark. That there's others out there that's just like me. Millions living in the shambles. Pierre Thomas, ABC News, Chippewa, Florida.
2: You can find information about literacy programs near you at our website, ABCNews.com.
0: Aren't you glad we just had a, an election um, with an interesting and new president who might do something about all of this. So literacy, um, as, um, as an educational anthropologist, I'm really interested in the relationship between literacy and culture. And because I think that literacy is an embedded process or set of practices within cultural ones as well. So I've outlined here what I think cult- how I think culture has been defined over time. Historically, um, culture has been defined as the general state of intellectual development in society as a whole, the general, general body of arts, a whole way of life, material, intellectual, and spiritual. Um, culture has also been, unfortunately, defined as neatly bounded. It has boundaries around it that you can take from one place to another. Culture is ideational, um, systems of ideas. And here I think about Clifford Geertz's notion of the webs of meaning um, that are shared amongst social actors. And then we have um, another kind of culture, the cultural deficit, such as cultural poverty. And we just heard that in the video. Um, Cultural production, and that comes from John Ogbu, Paul Willis and probably Pierre Bourdieu, where culture can be contested, resisted, reframed, um, used as agency, et cetera. And the other ways that we've thought about culture is culture as a hybrid space or a borderland. Um, And we think about that in terms of nation states and sometimes borderlands are ambiguous where you have, for example, in Chicago or in um, Lexington, Nebraska populations of Mexican immigrants who go back and forth across um, state boundaries, and then you th- have culture as discursively constructed. People are constantly revisiting, recreating, recreating, and generating new cultural ways, new cultural ways of being. Um, now, one of um, a really interesting scholar who did a lot of work with literacy and culture is Sylvia Scribner, and she said that the single most compelling fact about literacy is that, oh, I just noticed a typo, is that it is a social achievement, uh, and importantly, that literacy is the product of cultural transmission. And then she further pointed out that effective literacy programs are those that are responsive um, to perceived needs, whether for functional skills, social power, or self-improvement. The road to maximal literacy may begin for some through the feeder routes of, wi- of, a, um, of a wide variety of specific literacies and um, she did research in, um, in Africa on the Vi, and she really looked at the Vi's use of Arabic and their indigenous languages and really came up with a really interesting model of what literacy was in that setting. She talked about literacy as power, literacy as adaptation, literacy as a state of grace. And I can say more about that in our discussion. Um, I am very curious about the new kinds of literacies in a different kind of democracy, and um, the digital democracy and the celebration of you. That was written about in a really wonderful Time Magazine issue in December 2006. It was all about us. Everything in it was about us. And um, they pointed out that 65,000 people, 65, people post something on YouTube every single day. Um, They pointed out that 25-year-old Simon Pulsifer had authored over 3,000 Wikipedia articles. So you have to read those really carefully because I'm not sure he's an expert at everything. Um, Another woman, a librarian, Harriet Clausenier, had posted nearly 13,000 reviews on Amazon.com. And so basically, where is knowledge coming from on the internet? It's coming from all of us. And that is both interesting and wonderful and also very problematic. So a lot of the democratization of information has an emphasis on youth, okay? And individual generation of content and information is really transforming art and politics. I think that one of the reasons that Barack Obama became president is that he had this amazing way of connecting with people all across the country through the internet. More young people than ever voted. 21% of people ages 18 to 29 cite the Daily Show and Saturday Night Live as regular sources of their election news, by the way. Now, as a scholar, this is really problematic for me because I'm not sure that this is where we should be getting our evidence for arguments and for a democratic way of life. But it's very, very interesting. Um, Here's a video that was posted by some young people and it's about literacy. No, it's obviously it's freedom,
1: it's the ability We can get isn't that recording even even if you don't have like a college degree if you just have a high school even if you don't have a diploma from high school the ability to read is going to get you further in you know the workforce than those who can't in a lamer sense it's an escape if you're really into reading be it books or magazines or whatever and um, especially with everything being so high-tech lately, and the internet, there's so much out there to discover, and I just can't imagine what it would be like, how frustrating it would be to not, to miss out on all of that, to not be a part of that, because you can't read, I have, I can't imagine what it's like at all to not be able to read, because it seems like breathing anymore, um, I've been doing it for so long and I feel like all of us have been doing it for so long that you don't even think about it, you just do it. And I can't even think back to what it was like when I was four and not knowing what letters strung together meant or how words sounded. And it would suck in a
0: nutshell. (laughs) Um, I had that video in here because one of my students used that as evidence for why literacy is really important. And while I thought the video was really interesting, I wasn't sure that it was the best source of scholarly um, evidence to make certain arguments in this paper. However, so then of course I found a source that's just much more interesting, Brian Williams of NBC News. And, um, He wrote a really interesting uh, article in that 2006 issue of Time Magazine, and he said, and this is, I think, a criticism of what we're doing, um, um, it is now possible, even common, to go about your day in America and consume only what you wish to see and hear, okay? And that's problematic for many reasons. We're just hearing ourselves. We're not necessarily looking outwardly Um, to other forms of information, um, even forms of information that don't come from the United States. And then he said, there's a lot of information out there that citizens in an informed democracy need to know. Okay, and when I read this, I was thinking, great, you know, maybe NBC News would do the news better, but I don't think that's happening. Just seeing if you're paying attention. this is, this is to show, you know, there are books. Dad needs them for reading. I just thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in my, in my own work, um, I've spent, as Patrice Berger said, I've spent the last several years doing um, research in the Midwest on um, how literacy is, is um, taught and used across home and school settings. And I'm particularly interested in the literacies of immigrant groups as well as low socioeconomic um, status groups of students. And I've focused in particular on refugees from Iraq and poor white folks from Nebraska and the Midwest region. And when you look at um, I think one of the most interesting literacy models that I've seen has been published uh, by uh, a couple of scholars from Australia who've done a lot of work with kids in um, indigenous settings and as well as very poor people. And I'm just going to go through this list and talk about what each of these means. So. Um, the idea of the four resources model suggests agency and a way to advocate for education that's relevant in and out of school. So when we talk about code breaker, we're talking about breaking the code of written written ta- texts by recognizing and using fundamental features and in architecture, including the alphabet, sounds and words, spelling and structural conventions and patterns. This is what you did probably at a very early age. Um, when we participate as meaning makers, we're understanding and composing meaningful written visual and spoken texts, taking into account each other's texts, interior meaning systems in relation to the reader's available knowledge and experience of other cultural discourses, texts um, and meaning systems. And then as text as text users, we use texts functionally by traversing and negotiating, the labor and social relations around them. That is by knowing about and acting on the different cultural and social functions that various texts perform inside and outside of school and understand that these functions shape the text structures, tone, degree of formality, and sequence um, of components. And finally, I know these are sort of technical definitions, but I think they help us understand what literacy might mean um, across home and school settings. The last one is, you know, how, how, what is it to be a, te- a, a text critic? You know, whether you're on the internet or reading a magazine or a book or, or listening to a video clip. It means to critically analyze and transform text by acting on knowledge that texts are not ideologically neutral. Every text has an ideology embedded in it. That texts represent particular points of views while silencing others. And I think this is a, a, an important one. Um, and influence people's ideas, and that texts, designs and discourses can be critiqued and redesigned in novel and hybrid ways. So as I thought about this, I was doing research um, on youth, and today I'm only going to focus on a tiny snippet of my own research, and it really deals with um, the Kurds and Iraqis that have sought refuge in the United States. Um, and in Lincoln, we have about two to 3,000 um, Iraqis. And this is what I, I've seen, um, this is what I've observed in their lives. Um, they're interested and worried about becoming literate in and out of school. They're wondering about the formal and informal curricular expectations, and, and in particular, um, there are gendered expectations of curriculum within the school. Uh, These are young people that often marry very early. So marriage is really um, a huge emphasis in their lives and it can be a huge one starting at around age nine. So they have gendered expectations in connection to kinship structures and religion. Um, The Iraqi youth that I've studied are very interested in marrying other Iraqi youth from their own countries and within the same families that they come from. Finally, because they are in the United States and are relatively poor, they're also worried about their own socioeconomic well-being. And within the United States, they have to fit somewhere within the political and racialized um, spheres that we have here. So how they're perceived and how they perceive themselves in, in this world Um, is something that they think about and talk about and something that I've observed. So what I mean, I'm just going to take, of all that list, I'm not going to talk about everything, but I'd like to address very briefly um, a cultural phenomenon that has also appeared on YouTube, and that has to do with formal and informal curriculum. the list, this list, by the way, is informed by Kay Howe's um, book in England called "Educating Muslim Girls Shifting Discourses um, and, and um, some other texts. But if you think that about this, uh, if you think that if you think about public school as a total institution in the United States, um, then you're likely to think that it caters to social, academic, developmental, cognitive, and fitness needs of all of its students. So this is a very different model of schooling than what might have been found elsewhere in the world. In other countries, people's social lives and academic lives don't merge within the same school building. They're distinct and apart. Um, Also, secondary schools expect loyalty from its constituents. And this is something that's been documented by Penelope Eckert in her book, um, Jocks and Burnouts. So in American school settings, when kids from Iraq go to school, um, they find that there is a, a social curriculum as well, as well as an academic one. And it's hard to navigate that. And teachers have talked about this and how to help them navigate that. So I have a video that, that show, and this is from YouTube. YouTube is really an exciting place. Um,
3: As you watch this episode, think about these questions. What accommodations in the classroom environment are made out of respect for cultural differences? How might cultural differences be used to increase learning and student motivation?
1: Tell me again about Hajar. Hajar. And, and Hajar, yeah. And her, uh, and the sort of, whatever you want to call it, restrictions or requirements.
2: Uh, Hajar, she she started coming to our school in third grade. And at the time, um, our school was full. And so her parents came in and she says, and this is a true story, she says, Allah said that my children must go to the school. And yes, this, no, who said that? this is her, her, her mom. Her said, mom said. Allah said, I, we must come to the school. And Miss Sapp said, "I understand. Allah told you you're gonna you you're gonna come to the school, but right now we're not accepting any special assignments. We are full." She says, "No, Allah told me my children must come to the school because she doesn't even live in our district. She uh, lives in uh, off of St. John's Bluff Road, so this that's this is not even our area." And she said, "No, Allah said for me to come here. You know, I don't know how Allah picked our school, but she said Allah said that she had to come. So anyway, Miss Sapp said, Well, you know, here's the paperwork. We're full. You know.'" Do what you have to do. So she took it downtown, and I guess Allah must have told her that because she got in, even though we were full. So um, she started coming to the school. Um, you now I know certain during during certain months like Ramadan, which is in November, they fast from sun up until sun down. And so instead of um, subjecting her to the kids in the cafeteria eating lunch, she usually goes to the library during lunch where she won't see what the kids eating you know stuff like that um she did tell me that this year her sister lasted her sister's in kindergarten she only lasted one day of fasting (laughs) so i know that's kind of hard to put on the kindergartner (laughs) but she does it um she um has her veil that she keeps on her head and um, she has to wear that at all times um, she doesn't have to, but they're preparing her for adulthood. She's, she will be an adult when she turns 10 years old, and I thought that was pretty fascinating. Um, when she turns 10, she will not be the So take Let's
3: her. see, she's now 9? She's 9. nine. nine. She's
2: okay. 9. And when she turns 10, she will no longer be able to take her veil off at all in public, where right now she could if she wanted to, but when she turns 10 years old, she can't take her veil off in public. Um, she also cannot be taught by a male teacher. So, of course, her teacher is <coughs> to pick and in elementary school, it's not that hard to do because there's not many male teachers. We do have a male music teacher. And it just happens to be that, so she cannot go to music because he's a male teacher, but she also cannot listen to music. At, at all. all. She can listen to drums, but she cannot listen to music. So then again, when it's time for music, she has to go to the library. Um, you know, um, I haven't gotten into any of the um, As far as uh, religious, as far as Christmas and things like that, because I try to make sure that I'm aware of all, you know, all the different, uh, you know, ethnic backgrounds and religious backgrounds. May it be Jehovah's Witnesses who don't celebrate, you know, different holidays, or may it be, you know, Christian people who don't celebrate Halloween, or maybe you know, Muslims that don't have totally different holidays that we have. So I try to say I don't put a theme on it. If it's not a Christmas party, we have a, a winter break party, or we have spring festival or we have a fall festival or something that everyone can participate in and we're not saying that it's Christmas or we're not saying that it's you know Halloween or we're not saying that Uh,
3: no she can't be taught by male teachers but what else
2: she can't be taught by male teachers she cannot listen to music she cannot take her veil off Um, I think that's pretty pretty much it I don't know what she's going to do how about sitting by a boy she cannot yes right she cannot sit near a boy so and she cannot stand near one either so when we line up, she, sometimes you'll see, you'll notice her waiting in line for like three or four boys to pass and then a girl to come and then have a girl behind And the kids know this too. So the girls will make sure they surround her or get behind her or say. So there'll be at least one in front and one in back. It has to be one in front and one in back and then even sitting near a boy. She cannot sit near a boy. Now how do the, uh, the kids are happy to do this? Oh yeah, they don't, they don't have any problem with it. They, <coughs> about it. they don't make a big deal of, deal about it. And even the boys say, I can't stand that her. You know, just, you know, they'll tell a girl to get in between. plane you know, they,
0: they, they help her out, they help her out, make it easy for her. Okay. okay, there's a lot going on in this video clip and I don't really have time to go over all the interesting um, dilemmas that are faced by certain students in schools. Um, I just want to say that this clip, um, which is available on YouTube, um, is quite accurate in its portrayal of certain Muslim populations, not all Muslim populations. This probably would be more akin to a um, Yemeni-American experience in Dearborn, and that um, Iraqis in Lincoln and elsewhere represent a variety of socioeconomic and religious backgrounds. And so you might see this kind of experience in a school, but not everyone um, experiences this. The point I was trying to make is that this information is available in a place like YouTube and it's a way to democratize knowledge and to have um, access to this type of knowledge. And to me, this is a visual literacy that can be quite empowering, um, not only for students, but um, also for teachers. Now, as I took a look, as I've been taking a look at what's happening among the youth that I've been studying for the last seven years, um, I've noticed that um, you know, uh, that uh, Mary Pfeiffer is right. We are the, in the, we're the, we're in the middle of everywhere and nowhere at the same time. The youth that I've been studying are traveling back and forth to countries such as Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, um, um, and they're traveling to states like uh, Michigan in order to find um, spouses and to find other family members. And in doing so, um, they're acquiring new kinds of literacies and they must um, be able to pass things like reading demonstration exams um, or a citizenship tests which require a certain, ki- certain kind of literacy in order to travel to these places. And so what I'm finding is that the world, um, even in Lincoln, is quite a global one in this population. and The literacy practices that um, I've observed um, are quite explosive in a way because um, um, they're generated by this need to connect to places outside of the United States for reasons such as marriage. So when we look at literacy in and out of school, I met a young man, Hyder, who once told me, um, I need a job, I have too many speeding tickets, I drive six brothers to school, I'm the only one who works, I want to learn in school, get a job, and pay for tickets. He had job worries, car worries, sibling responsibility worries, and relevant curriculum worries. And the relevant curriculum worries, I don't know if you can see that very much, but you might be familiar with the children's book called is your mama a llama? Um, it goes like, "Is your mama a llama?" I asked uh, my friend Fred. No, she's not, is what Freddie said. She has a long neck and white feathers and wings. I don't think a llama has all those things. Oh, I said, you don't need to go on. Um, that you're, you you do not need to go on. I think your mama must be a swan, and. Well, you know, I, I would agree that this is a lovely book and a wonderful story for young children. But I remember that Hyder read this as a 17-year-old in an English class. And so, when you juxtapose his real-life worries that I've listed to the left here with the kinds of texts that he was learning in school, you can see that there is definitely a literacy disconnection. You know, what's relevant about is your mama a llama? Um. So, okay, take a look at that. Now in the case of um, Das a young woman that I've known for quite a long time and I actually arrived in Lincoln the same year that she did in 2001, <coughs> she expressed different kinds of worries, she's worried about being too old uh, she's worried about t- being too educated in compa- comparison to the men she might marry. She's worried about finding a good man. She's worried about her father and, and brother accepting <laughs> whoever it is that she's going to marry. She's worried about kinship relationship uh, relationship wor- um, where she, she, I think she wants to marry a cousin and is that problematic in the United States. She has citizenship worries. And she's not sure where she belongs anymore. And this is probably typical of many people who have these transnational experiences. Um, and she said, I have to marry, I'm too old already. And she told me this when she was you know, 17, and she's still telling me this now that she's 23 or 24. I have to go to Iraq, Kurdistan, but I can't because I don't have citizenship. And when I get it, I'll be too old. I already have a high school degree, Kurd- Kurdish men um, they are better, not like Kurdish men here. I want to I want to have a virgin man. We won't go into that right now, but I'm getting old. Um, so when we think about you know, literacy and why it's powerful, Dostan really wanted to be able to read and write in order to become a citizen, in order to travel outside the United States to get married. And when I look back at the research over the last uh, 30 years or so, um, I read again a brain researcher called Barbara Hardy who said that you know narrative is the primary mode of mind and it is the best way to get youth writing, talking, and reading. And I hear a lot of these personal stories from the people I study where they give these, they share these wonderful narratives about uh, the difficulties of life. At the same time, there are both narrative and paradigmatic ways of thinking and composing meaning and that each has a particular power. And we're aware of this in public schools. And when you, the third quote I have in here is In both academic disciplines and democratic <laughs> societies, argument is the most powerful of the paradigmatic structures. So we also focus on developing students' capacity to argue. And I think this is one of the tasks of education and literacy education in particular, um, in relation to. Um, to young people and families that may be disenfranchised um, in our current democracy. So when I think about uh, the role of literacy in everyday life, I think about advocacy across human literacy activities. And I'm working on how to to, uh, conceptualize this, how to offer an interesting model to explain this. Um Literacy is embedded in everything that we do. We have health concerns, educational concerns, economic concerns, socio- cultural concerns, and maybe other concerns that I haven't put in this onion of you know um, web this or this web of significant meanings. Yet people are dealing with literacy activities across these dimensions so. As I think about the tensions that I've tried to show you through the digitization of literacy and the example of Hyder and the example of um, Duston and also in the example of Brian Williams telling us we really ought to pay attention um, to where our our information is coming from, um, I tried to devise a way to think about this, and this is something I'm still working on, um, what if we have a concept called locally flexible citizenship in education? And I'm using that. It's a set of terms that, um, um, that have surfaced in the writings of um, other scholars where um, they argue that increasingly communities that are transnational um, construct their cultural identities through a pragmatic assessment of the best strategies of advancement, regardless of national place. Um, this was argued by um, A. Ong, who wrote Flexible Citizenship, the Cultural Logics of Transnationality. And I think this is very applicable not only to transnational populations, but also to host populations in the United States. And within this model, what we have to think about are the gendered and religious domains, literacy as social practice, politicized and racialized perceptions of youth, the curricula that we're introducing people to, um, transnational and within kinship group marriages, and education as a credential. And I think that if we do that and we look at the intersection of literacy um, I th- in, within all of those domains, I think it's quite possible that literacy, if we, th- if we think of it as a competence or an awareness, will actually be really productive in, um, in helping people live in a democratic society. I think this is something we still work on every day. I don't think we have the answers to what that means. So I will stop here. A little bit
3: And I I think we do have some time for questions, if there are are questions that come to mind. And there's one, certainly. Uh, You mentioned earlier, uh, I'm singing this sort of as a joke, about uh, the newly elected president and the, the, I'm not sure, you probably agree with the word subpar efforts of the last president um, on improving literacy in the United States. Um, since we know that um, democracies operate on an educated uh, voter base, uh, are there any ideas uh, that you would have on how to increase literacy so that we're more um, we're more of a democratic state?
0: Hi, <laughs> can you hear me with this on? Oh, okay. I'll go back here. Um, I have many, many ideas. Um, I think we should disturb ourselves a little bit. I think we need to make ourselves a little bit uncomfortable and read and inquire about things we don't know and leave the major networks and see other networks. I mean, with the digitization of knowledge, we can have access to news and information from all over the world. Yet, when you look at studies of how people use multimedia, they keep coming back to what they know and what they're comfortable with, in part because they've set those tabs on their computer and it's too difficult to change that. Um, You know, eight years ago when President Bush was elected, uh, The papers in the UK said half the country voted for him. And I was thinking, well, I don't think that half the country is print illiterate, but perhaps half the country um, um, is very comfortable in itself and doesn't question or doesn't address the issues beyond that comfort level. I don't know if that's an appropriate answer or not. Okay.
3: I have a question related to um, different cultures that or, or ethnicities that will enter into a school that is um, uh, dominantly majority, whether it's like white, uh, white Caucasian. Like in the cases of Lexington or other places where uh, a minority will come in or just an immigrant group, how can United States um, public schools be or their educators be better prepared to meet the needs of these um, of these immigrants or of these uh, minorities that entering uh, the public school system?
0: Well, luckily I have several colleagues in the audience who could probably answer that question perhaps better than I can, but I think that it would be really wonderful if in our own, each person's education, we actually spoke another language er- early on. Um, I think knowing a different, and if not another language, knowing a different symbolic system so that we have a sense of at least linguistically and culturally what it is that um, uh, people who are exploring transnational pathways are, are learning. Um, I think certainly an openness of mind and I don't know if that's something you teach or something you experience over your lifetime. Um, I think that when the United States government comes up with interesting policies for change in education, such as No Child Left Behind, having a thoughtful and pragmatic and economic way of implementing that and understanding what it means to hold teachers and kids accountable to whatever standards um, are in place. I don't think we were thoughtful in our process over the last eight years.
3: Uh, Lucia, um, Roger Cohen, a uh, New York Times op-ed column about 18 months ago, suggested as a high school curriculum having kids back-to-back watch CNN, BBC, and Al Jazeera in English to understand the, uh, various conflicts in the Middle East. He wasn't arguing that one of those perspectives was necessarily better than all of the others, but he thought that the, the juxtaposition, understanding points of view Mm -hmm. that might be powerful. And and I'm curious, A, to hear your just thought, you know, some level it's it's a simplistic silver bullet described in five hundred words. Um, But what's your thought about that as an idea of perhaps uh, realizing some of the work that you're describing about? And then B, if it's at least vaguely intriguing, what would make it work and what would be your fear that would have it come crashing again?
0: I think that's a wonderful idea. I mean, one of my favorite activities when I'm doing interviews with um, Iraqi families is to go into a home where they have digital television and they have access to all of the networks in the Middle East and Europe. And they're listening to the news in multiple languages. And in those homes, these families are far more informed than the rest of us um, You know, in, in that context. And I think, for example, you know, we know that locally Lincoln Highs has the new baccalaureate program. So the idea of introducing kids to multiple texts from from different countries with different ideologies, and becoming, you know, in that four resources model that I sh- that I showed from Alan Luke and Freebody, and becoming uh, not only literate readers but critical readers in their sense. Um, I think that would be a really powerful thing to do. A powerful way to engage. Um, I think visible pedagogy. It's a visual and visible pedagogy, and I I would support teachers who are interested in doing that. Is that is that what you were asking?
3: Yeah, I'm just uh, I partly was wondering what kind of mediation makes that viable as opposed to hazardous, or what would the role of the, the teacher
0: be? I think you need a good computer like what I have, wireless connection, and a nice screen. <laughs> okay. And I think it's very possible. Oh, and I forgot a wonderful tech person to help you. <laughs> and I think everything is possible. Did I see
3: one more hand
0: there earlier? Please, and that's... Um, in the- video clip of the news, um, the Literacy Across America thing. Um, Was there meaning behind the fact that the people they interviewed were all women? That's an excellent, excellent question. Um, As it turns out, there are more men in the United States than women who are uh, not print literate, okay, but because Women tend to be the ones who have primary care of children for the most part, and who are more involved with schools and health care in terms of the children, and perhaps themselves and the husbands. They are more visibly print uh, They're more visibly uh, not print literate. Um, it's still a taboo topic in the United States um, to have it surface that one cannot read and write. And men especially, men, especially who are of um, working class background or low socioeconomic status, will not discuss that. We don't really have a sense of the number of men who have trouble with literacy.
3: I think this is excellent. Thank you again,
0: I think Steve had a question. Is there one more question?
3: Um, much about democracy and while this last election was really exhilarating, um, nevertheless it was voting every few years for elected officials. And I'm wondering if you're leaving unpredicted the state of democracy and, and what kind of democracy kids are experiencing in schools and out and you whether know, this itself
0: That's a really great question, and this is something I'm I'm figuring out as I write this next book, and that's why I haven't said too much about it. Um, I think I'm not sure, in the the literacy-oriented classrooms that I've been in during the last seven years, I'm not sure that I've really observed democracy in action, in part because I have not seen teachers engage in creative literacy teaching because a lot of the curriculum is imposed from somewhere else. And what I have seen is kids resisting and being agents of their own literacy in spite of this curriculum. And so I have hope that democracy is at work I'm not sure it's always coming from the schools in relationship to the students. And, you know, I'm still analyzing a lot of data and thinking this through, and this model that I've put up here, I'm I'm working through that. But hopefully, you know, I'll have more to say about that in a year. (laughs) Thank you
2: very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much.